You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 10, episode eight. Before we get into today's episode, I want to remind our poets out there that submissions for the Bright Wings Poetry Contest are now open until November 25th. The winning poet will receive $500 as well as appear on an episode of Makers and Mystics and have the winning poem published in Ecstasis Magazine. You can find the link to enter at makersandmystics.com or in the show notes of this episode. Blaine Hogan is a writer, film and creative director, and actor. He is the former creative director for Willow Creek Community Church and is currently a full-time filmmaker living in Atlanta, Georgia. His recent memoir, Exit the Cave, Embracing a Life of Courage, Creativity, and Radical Imagination, is a brutally honest recounting of his struggle with addiction and the unexpected gift of hitting rock bottom. In this episode, Blaine and I talk about his background as an actor, the role of filmmaking in his journey of recovery, and the ongoing process of finding wholeness. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy several additional interview segments with Blaine at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. This is my interview with actor and filmmaker Blaine Hogan. Blaine, thank you so much for joining me on the Makers and Mystics podcast today, my friend. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I am as well. Thank you for having me. You know, I've had this strange sense as we were talking about that I've known you for some time, but as we're running the gamut of our connections, it seems like we've been like six steps away from each other for the past couple of years, but here we are finally connecting. Who knows what kind of mayhem might come out of this? I don't know. I'm looking forward to it. Also, you did have me um, confused with another Hogan filmmaker. So that's on you, Stephen. Maybe <laughs> maybe there's a whole colony of Hogan filmmakers out Gosh, there that we don't I know hope about. So. There might be. We need to hunt for them. Yeah, maybe some metaverse or some you oh know multiverse God. versions of you. Yeah. I so mean, if you are a Hogan filmmaker out there, um, we're calling <laughs> to you now. We've put the signal We've got in a the hotline. sky. It is uh, in the universe. Please uh, reveal yourselves to us. <laughs> That's right. We're looking for you in the show notes of the episode. You'll see the hotline number. Yeah. <laughs> Well, with a beginning like that, we can only go up from here. I'd love to start with just your background as an artist, as a filmmaker. I know you're a storyteller as well as you're doing some writing. Tell me how you began pursuing this path. Has this been a lifelong endeavor or what? Yeah, it really has. I was nine years old and uh, I kind of come from a family of performers. My mom's side of the family were like old school vaudeville performers and, you know, had rock bands and have gone on to pursue acting in LA or started theater companies, uh, were in radio. And so it was kind of like always in the water in, uh, in our family. When I was nine, uh, I was cast in a community theater production of The Wizard of Oz. I was the Lollipop Guild mm-hmm. uh, number two. It's the one that hands Dorothy the lollipop. Mm-hmm. And I, there was something about being on stage. There was something about the live theater aspect. 
that I just kind of got the bug right then and there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, since then I knew I wanted to pursue some sort of path in the arts. And for a very long time, it was as an actor. So, you know, I was back in the day circling audition notices. This is when we had newspapers and classified ads and being like, hey, mom, hey, dad, take me to this audition. And then eventually went to theater school and toured around the country doing all kinds of theater back and forth from New York to uh, Chicago to Florida doing terrible productions of guys and dolls at (laughs) dinner theaters for old people to showboats (laughs) in Iowa and just like the most random things. But I always felt like this is what my job was going to be. I was going to be an actor. Showboats in Iowa? I thought there were only cornfields in Iowa. Is, Is there water in Iowa? There is water. There's the Mississippi River, Stephen. It runs right (laughs) through it. And in fact, I've performed on two separate showboats on the same river in two different cities, Uh, St. Charles, Missouri, the Goldenrod showboat, and um, I can't remember the other one. But yeah, showboats have been a big part of my life. That's amazing. I can't help but comment as well on your mentioning of The Wizard of Oz because anybody who listens to Makers and Mystics for any length of time knows that The Wizard of Oz gets brought up with me on occasion. It is not only my favorite fairy tale, Hmm. but if you look on my bookshelf back here, I've got a whole shelf devoted to books about the life of Frank Baum, all of The Wizard of Oz novels. Oh my gosh. That's pretty cool that you bring up The Wizard of Oz. Amazing. Well, yes. Well, then before we finish this conversation, make sure we uh, discuss the origin of the Tin Man. Oh, well, that is a chapter in the book that you are releasing called Exit the Cave, Embracing a Life of Courage, Creativity, and Radical Imagination. And why don't we dive into that a little and tell us about this book, Exit the Cave. And you know, a lot of it's about your life story, but tell me why you were compelled to write this. Yeah, well, I originally uh, signed a contract for this book in 2018. Um, my, uh, my path from an actor led me to a rock bottom, a place of rock bottom. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found myself um, in Seattle going to grad school. And I tell the, these stories in the book, but I ended up finding my way into becoming the creative director of a mega church outside of Chicago. And when you're a creative director at a mega church, eventually you write a book. And so that <laughs> I felt like was the thing I was supposed to do. And there were stories that I really did want to tell. Uh, but at any rate, I got this uh, book contract when I was kind of at the height of being this creative director of a megachurch and felt like I, I was going to write a kind of a manifesto or treatise on the creative process. And I was going to, of course, weave my story throughout it. But uh, as 2018 turned into 2019, turned into 2020, uh, the church that I was a part of fell apart. Uh, the world, in fact, began to fall apart. And I realized um, that I needed to tell uh, a much different story or a more particular story. Mm-hmm. And the way in which I was going to talk about the creative process was through the arc and lens of my transformation over the last 20 years. Um, The way I've been describing the book is it's the story of my abuse, recovery from addiction, and how a new understanding of creativity saved my life. I relate to that so much, just even through my own journey from 2020 to present day. And I think so many of us, especially in the world of art, can relate to 
a particular trauma that's taken place in this, whether that was induced by the pandemic and everything that everybody's life turning upside down or whether it's just that environment brought us to a place where we had to deal with some things that had laid dormant for years prior. But your story dovetails perfectly with what we're focused on this season on the podcast. And like I mentioned to you before we started recording, Season nine of Makers and Mystics, we focused on mental, emotional, and spiritual health for the creative artist. And now we're transitioning into conversations on the restoration of the heart of the artist and what it looks like to become wounded healers and to have some of the things that we've gone through to heal into art is the way that I've been describing it. So I'd love for you to share any bits of your story that you'd like to share with us today uh, from the book or just from your life experience as it relates to your creative journey of healing. Yeah, there, um, there's so much <laughs> to talk <laughs> about, sure. Stephen. It's so, that's such a big question. It's such a good one. So uh, when I was 17, I was sitting in a humanities class and our teacher told us the story of Plato's allegory of the cave. And in brief, it uh, tells the story of a tribe of people who are chained facing this giant cave wall. And what they're seeing are shadows being projected on the wall. And behind them is this fire. And in between them and the fire is this walkway. And there's another group of people and they're walking all these objects back, a tree, a chair, whatever, a dog. And the tribe that is staring at the cave wall are seeing the shadows of those projected elements. The story goes that one day um, a man stands up, the chains fall off. He realizes he's not shackled at all, that he's free to go whenever he wants wants. He sees the shadows, he sees the fire, he sees the objects, but beyond it, he sees this little white dot. And that becomes his white dot of hope. And he makes his way out of the cave. Every step, you know, into the light is more painful than the last. And eventually he gets to the end and he sees a tree, he sees a chair, he sees a dog. So uh, Plato's basically telling the story. We're all kind of stuck in a present where we're looking at shadows and how do we go about finding um, what truth is uh, to us. Mm -hmm. But the most amazing part of that story, uh, I think, is what happens at the very end. And there's a twist to the story because instead of just running for the hills and as far away from the cave as possible, he turns around and he re-enters the cave. He goes all the way back into the darkness and he stands before his tribe and he says, there's so much more. Mm. And I remember being 17 years old, seeing that picture and uh, that story just stuck with me. It's the one of the stickiest stories that I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I, I, I thought for a long time, my job as an artist was to be that person to go back into the cave and tell everyone that there's so much more. And I did that through all different forms of art. Because when you think about it, you know, so much art happens in dark places that happens in theaters. For me, as a filmmaker, it happens in, you know, a cinema and in a movie theater. Um, It happens, you know, with a little light by your bedside table as you're like, you know, engulfed in a story. And so I kept playing that role of the person um, who kept going back, but what I, uh, for, for others saying, there's so much more uh, until I hit my rock bottom and realized that I needed to sort of retrace some of the steps of how I got to where I got to. Um, because in truth, my life was falling apart. 
The other story I tell uh, in the book is uh, an evening in Chicago. I was living downtown. Um, everything was kind of going great. I uh, had gotten my SAG card acting on Prison Break. I was working at the best theaters in town, Chicago Shakespeare, The Good Men. And uh, kind of career-wise, everything was going up and to the right. Meanwhile, there was a ton of stuff that was collapsing on the inside. I knew years before that that I had been given the name of addict. I was acting out sexually in all sorts of ways, in ways that I could no longer control. And one evening, I had a panic attack that led me to uh, the ER. And that is kind of where everything tumbled apart for me. That story uh, jumped me to Seattle, where I took two years off from acting. And not because I was, this wasn't sort of a, for all you Kirk Cameron lovers out there, I apologize, but this wasn't one of those like Kirk Cameron, like the industry is destroying mm -hmm. me. I have to go, you know, find Jesus and figure out how to, you know, let's retake Hollywood for Jesus. I, I no, that, that wasn't what was happening. There was pain in my life and the pain was trying to tell me something and I wasn't listening until it rattled me to my core and I had to make a different choice. I'd grown up in an uh, alcoholic home. Um, I'd experienced sexual abuse as a kid. And I knew that somewhere inside of me, I knew that I had to go and kind of figure out the shadows that I had been staring at yes. instead of just being the artist that was coming back and saying there's so much more. And uh, I'll tell you one more story. Uh, it's, a, it's a fable, oh, I guess. Uh, I mean, depending on how you view the Bible. In Genesis, there's this story of Hagar. And Hagar um, becomes a mistress for Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Sarah can't conceive, so they make Hagar uh, their slave, essentially. She's a, a handmaid. She becomes pregnant, and one night, uh, in the middle of the night, she flees uh, the castle. She runs through the woods. She finds herself at the riverbed, and an angel of the Lord appears and asks two questions. These are two questions that I heard after I had left for two years, um, found myself in Seattle um, at a place called the Seattle School for Theology and Psychology. Mm -hmm. A guy by the name of Dan Allender stood up and told us the story of Hagar. And he asks the questions that the angel asks of Hagar. Where have you come from and where are you going? And in between those two questions is sort of this space-time continuum. We think of time as pretty linear. It's past, present, future. And he said, that's not incorrect, but how we interpret time is so much different. We actually look at time as past, future, present. And by that, he means that whatever's happened to us in the past is how we imagine the future. And how we imagine the future is how we live in the present. And so if you want to change your present, you have to imagine a new future. And if you want to imagine a new future, you have to change your past. And most people say, well, that can't be done. How do you change your past? And what I learned in my time and what I write about in the book is not how I changed my past, but how I changed my relationship to my past how I reinterpreted those core stories that happened to be. How do I reinterpret my abuse? How do I reinterpret the shame that my dad gave me in moments of alcoholic rage? How do I reinterpret some of the stories of abuse that I encountered in the church at the hands of a leader? And so for a long time, I thought my job as an artist, um, I felt really creative in my artistic life. 
all of the things I did as an actor, as a director, as a filmmaker. And I realized the place that I was having the most difficulty being creative was my actual life. And what the book tells is my story of how I learned to do the most creative thing, which was reinterpret my past, imagine a completely different future, and then actually figure out how to make that thing in reality today, which you could template that on every single artistic endeavor. You, you have a dream of something, you imagine what it is, and you figure out the steps to get there today. You know, every step, you know, happens one, one day at a time. How I came to that was through recovery from my addiction, through actually asking that question, where have I come from? And letting those answers give me a new vision for the future, which led me to what I think is an amazing life right now. I still struggle with depression. I still struggle with anxiety and and panic. I still struggle in um, areas of my addiction. I am not whole. I am not healed. It is truly one day at a time, but it is the most creative I've ever been. That's amazing, man. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, as you were talking and sharing your story, I was thinking about the veneer of success and how when we have a measure of outward success, whether it's in our art, in our creativity, and the things that we make, the things that we're passionate about, the things we're doing, even though there's a beauty in that, sometimes that success of our exterior life, it keeps us from listening to the stories that our interior lives are screaming to us. And I know just sharing my own story you know, with you, that's a lot of what happened in my life is I had so many beautiful things happening on the outside and the exterior creativity and community and things were happening there. But on the inside, I was dying. And you called it the gift of hitting rock bottom. And sometimes it takes the exterior being stripped away in one form or another to get us to actually listen to the stories that our lives are telling. So I wonder if you could speak into that a little bit for us. Yep, absolutely. I think that there's probably two ways um, to look at it, because certainly there is exactly what you're describing, that um, you get a measure of success, it buffers you from some amount of pain. And then the pain inside has to get great enough to break through that feeling of safety or security. So I'll pause there because I do want to go back to that. But I also think that there are moments in our lives where we are experiencing greatness, goodness, success. And it's not that the pain or the darkness is waiting to to bubble up and needs to burst through, but sometimes it's that we can't accept the goodness. Mm-hmm. We can't accept the sweetness. We may have uh, you may have grown up in in places where you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. So accepting goodness is just too overwhelming for you, and uh, you have to sabotage that. And sometimes it looks like. Either way, either either way, there's something going on on the inside, and it's either coming out and saying, "Hey, stop sabotaging this goodness." What do you, what do we need to lean into and and accept um, so that, or what do we need to lean lean into, work through so that we can listen to what our bodies are trying to tell us when we are confronted with success, and why do we 
look to sabotage it. And then also on the on the other side of it, kind of what you were saying, wh- what do you do when the pain just finally breaks through? I will say as a as a kid who grew up in a family where, so my dad was a, an alcoholic and a sex addict and had disordered eating. I saw almost every day my dad's daily struggle. Everything was always life or death. And uh, I did lose my dad um, a number of years ago to addiction. Um, and it's a story I tell about or I tell in the book. But I think that as I realized, oh, I have some of my dad inside of me, that I do have a choice of life or death. And I think that that is the gift of rock bottom. I think that is the gift of addiction. And the great news is everyone is an addict. <laughs> the great news is everyone is addicted to something. Mm-hmm. And so it may not be the the perceived kind of hard stuff. I mean, it may be things that look really great and and flashy, like you're an amazing helper, um, but that's actually because you want to control everything. You're an incredible leader because you also want to control. A lot of it goes back to control. <laughs> right. But I think the great news is really is that everyone is an addict and our bodies and our stories are trying to remind us of those things so that we could do the work of uncovering some of our past and uncovering the stories and the particularities and the places in which we have found ourselves stuck and unable to imagine a new future. And really, that's why I love the name of the podcast, Makers and Mystics, because it's such a beautiful representation of this journey. It takes a mystic to imagine something different, Mm -hmm. but then it also takes a maker to mine and uncover the stories of the past so that you can imagine mystically a different future, but then put (laughs) it into tangible practice and make that new life today. I'm curious, how has your journey of recovery changed the way that you think about creativity? I'm not sure if I can separate my journey of recovery with my creativity. I think for a long time, I thought that creativity was a thing. It was something that you you had or you didn't have. And what I've learned is that creativity, it's a way of thinking. And that way of thinking propels a new way of doing. And so I think that those who are in recovery, like I said, everyone's an addict. So everyone gets the opportunity to go through a process of recovery. The people that are actively on their journey are really truly the most creative people. Yes. And, you know, write what you know. Well, now everything is kind of flowing out of the daily task of one day at a time. You have to just take one little step forward. Like I have a short film that I've been trying to make for four years that's attached to a feature and it's been in perpetual pre-production for many years. And so I know just every day my job isn't to make the final thing. It's just to do one little step. So it's to take one day at a time. So that has templated pretty easily over my recovery journey. I keep repeating it, but if you want to do something different today, you have to imagine a different future. And if you want to imagine a different future, you have to go back to the past. And I feel like There are so many stories that we're all waiting to tell 
that the world would be so much better for if we just did the work of figuring out what those stories are. I'm glad you're going to do some Frank Baum research because if you look at his life, you can start to see, oh, that fable of the Wizard of Oz and that whole world came from a place of his own story and his pain and his own trauma. All of the greatest stories have come from someone's unique past. And so I'm realizing that now as, as I keep doing the work, oh, there's this one. Oh, okay, well, what if something happened a little bit different here? Or what if we reinterpreted that? Oh, that is actually a whole new character. That's a whole new world. Mm -hmm. And so I think kind of to summarize, I don't think that there is a difference between my recovery journey and my creative journey or my creativity. I don't think I could be in recovery without creativity. And I don't think I could have the creativity that I have without my recovery. One question I want to ask you, we've been talking about Frank Baum and the Wizard of Oz this whole time. And so it just seems pertinent to go here, but you have a chapter in the book titled Tin Man. And I'd love to know how that ties into your story and uh, what that chapter is about. I think it's my favorite chapter in the whole book. So yes, I played the Lollipop Guild number two. That was the first play I ever did. And then I got to play that role again in a neighboring town. Word had gotten out that I was really great with a lollipop. And they were like, give this kid another shot. We want him. <laughs> and then I did a third production of The Wizard of Oz where I played the Scarecrow, but I always wanted to play the Tin Man. Now, most people don't know the origin of the Tin Man isn't how it starts in The Wizard of Oz. It's actually a much darker tale. Mm -hmm. So the Wicked Witch of the East, the one like, I'll get you my pretty and all the green makeup, which she almost got... She almost died, that actress almost died playing that role because um, they were using all kinds of like crazy weird makeup with all sorts of oils in it. And then when they did the explosion, her skin started on fire. You should look it up. It's There's some amazing like oh gosh, BTS. Yes. Anyway, so the story of the Tin Man is that uh, the Wicked Witch of the East has this servant. And there's a, a man, a young boy by the name of Nick Chopper, a young man. Um, he's a woodsman, humble woodsman. He falls in love with the witch's servant. The witch is like, well, we can't have that because she's going to be distracted from the work that I needed to do. She's my servant. I need her focused on my needs, not this Nick Chopper. So she puts a curse on Nick's axe. And the way the rest of the story goes is that periodically the axe chops off one of um, Nick's limbs. And so one by one, he's chopping a limb off and he's replacing it with tin until his entire body is made of tin. You know what can't survive in a tin body? A heart. So while the process was extremely long and drawn out, the curse worked evil one and um, Nick fell out of love because his heart couldn't survive in a tin body. And for so long, I felt like I was that tin man. I had dismembered my body in so many ways. And I myself had fallen out of love with myself, with people around me. My addiction had made me callous and cold. Uh, my heart had died. In Seattle, the very last week before I left and returned kind of my hero's journey of coming home, I went to what's called a recovery week. It's a, man, a, a group of men who are all telling their stories of addiction. 
the very last night, uh, Dan Allender, who told me that story of Hagar, he invited us all to communion. Um, I grew up Catholic, and so the the act of communion was, has always been a big part of my life. And he does the whole thing, you know, um, take this body, take this cup, eat this, drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And all of a sudden, it all kind of came clear that the work of grace is, yes, in that story, Jesus is saying, remember me, remember me, as I want to remember you. And the work of grace in my story has been exactly that. It, as I have remembered the past, it is remembering me. So good. So good. It's actually putting me back together. And actually, Stephen, I have this figurine that I actually got from Seattle. And I tell the story in the book, but... Look. Oh, I love it. You guys can't see this, but Blaine is showing me a figurine of the Tin Man. And so I'll be sure to put a picture of this on our Instagram so you can see what I'm seeing. And so I have it sitting out in our kitchen. Um, we have three daughters now. And, you know, he's like, I want a heart. And I have this out just as a continue, just sort of as a reminder. I'm going to set it right here. So it will always be a part of this. Yeah. <laughs> that as I did the work of remembering my past, the work of grace is remembering me. It's putting me back together. And that's the story of the Tin Man that most people have never heard. Well, I just have one last question for you. And you've touched on this a little bit already, but throughout our conversation, you've talked about working as a creative director in a faith community, a mega church. You talked about growing up Catholic. I'd be curious to know what role your spiritual life has played in this road of recovery, as well as your own creative life. How do those things intersect with you? I'm actually in the middle of a documentary right now, working with uh, the Fetzer Institute. They are a really amazing organization. Their whole mission is to create a spiritual foundation for a loving world. And what they do is fund projects all over the world that remind us of our innate spirituality. And the project I'm working on right now is about spirituality and education. And it's sort of like there's an extension of social emotional learning that we are trying to reattach to that children are scientifically proven, children are spiritual beings. And this is not religion. Um, religion and spirituality are different things, right? Right. And so um, I was actually going through the edit yesterday and recognizing that if not for the grace of God, if not for love, if not for some connection to something deeper, a higher power, one, I wouldn't be alive. And two, now that I am starting to get more comfortable receiving goodness from, say, my daughters, who are the worst at it, they just love me. <laughs> <laughs> like, they just do. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think what I keep trying to do is tap into this eternal goodness, um, this eternal well of, of energy, of help, of hope, of guidance, um, because being a human is really hard. Being a mystic is insanely hard. Like, stop imagining 
new and different things. Stop seeing things. Just shut up and sit down. Being a maker is so hard. And so without some deeper connection, um, for me, that's Jesus. For me, that is rooted and grounded in following the ways of, of Jesus. I probably found myself distancing myself from some of the organized religion and some of the trauma that I have encountered. Community is still a very big part of my life, but not necessarily in that sort of white evangelical megachurch context anymore. But as I said before, in the same way that I can't separate my recovery journey from my creative journey, I can't separate my spirituality from my creativity. Yes. I think that the work, as, as I mentioned before, the work of remembering is exactly that. It's remembering like what was already there. I always think in the Christian faith, there are people that say they're first Genesis people or third Genesis three people. Mm-hmm. Did we start in goodness or did we start at original sin. I prefer the interpretation of we started in goodness. Absolutely. And we need to remember that. And so for me, I can't separate it because I just couldn't do any of the things that I'm doing without that source, without that connection, uh, without that love that every day is helping me to remember my past and remember my present because I'm imagining a different future now. Blaine, tell our listeners where we can connect with you and where we can find you online. Uh, yeah, you can find me um, on Instagram at Blaine Hogan. And then uh, you can buy the book wherever books are sold or at exitthecavebook.com. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I've enjoyed this conversation thoroughly and I look forward to connecting with you again. Oh my gosh, Stephen. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This episode was produced by me, Stephen Roach, with music provided by Sean Williams. I'd like to give a very special thanks to our monthly patrons who make this podcast possible. If you enjoy the content of Makers and Mystics and would like to support the continued production of these conversations, please consider joining our creative collective at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. For as little as $1 to $10 a month, You can encourage artists around the world and further our efforts as advocates of art, faith, and culture. Visit patreon.com slash makersandmystics or see the show notes of this episode. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.